This episode is brought to you by Symbolic Documentation. As you know, putting together a new Swedish media cabinet can be a nightmare. Use screw U19 on pinhole A54. Hmm, are, are those screws supposed to be different lengths? Symbolic Documentation has the assembly instructions you've been looking for. Clear, straightforward, no-nonsense explanations. How? With the super declarative power of allegory. Each of their technical writers was hired from the lyrics team of stoned-out psychedelic progressive rock bands. Why should your customers struggle with insert peg B into slot A when you can get the declarative how-to from the subtext of once there was a noble king who set out from a golden city far? There's literally nothing a good drawn-out metaphor can't handle. They've written catastrophic recovery guides for airlines, even decommissioning step-by-steps for nuclear power plants. Are their manuals really better? Well, let's just read randomly from their testimonials. Let's try... Ah, and behold, the blackest kettle was opened, and yea, out came the seven echidnas and declared, oh yea, oh yea, oh yea. That's some praise. Take a bow, Symbolic Documentation. And thank you, Symbolic Documentation, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Good evening or morning or whatever it is, wherever you're listening. <laughs> I just, as I said that, I'm like, this, that doesn't apply to podcast so i should (laughs) well we have to keep it every someone could be watching it in the middle of the night but and they should believe that we are actually talking to them through their little ear holes and so exactly yeah well craig i got news for you Mm -hmm. we have corrections so we were talking about uh jolinta for the last uh two episodes Mm -hmm. And uh, Aurora Boraquest on Reddit says, the idea of Jalinta involuntarily mind-controlling Severian and excusing him from the sin of rape is pretty thin, I got to say. Wolf is saying a lot of layered, multifaceted things in this chapter. But this second guessing goes a little too far with that one. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that sounds a little less like a correction and more like a difference <laughs> of, of opinion about what's going on. Um, plus, I don't think I just at least a, the way I remember we did it, we didn't we more had questions about what actually is going on. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, said that that was it. We did bring that up as a possibility, um, although I don't remember the mind controlling part so much. I, I definitely remember the sort of. um I mean, I guess yeah. if you think that all of her seductiveness is "quote unquote" mind control, I suppose. But I don't think that's even if there's the whatever the suggestiveness that we suggested that there's something yeah. hypnotic about what Talus does. I mean, however you define it, I don't think we excused him, right? As far as oh, I'm, no. I'm, I mean, the, uh, Craig, I'm the one who says it doesn't matter if Severian is a good guy 
or a bad guy, that this is about a story about a society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, that Severian being good or bad is really beside the point. And a lot of people don't agree with me, but that's my opinion. So, I mean, I can say for sure that I don't really have a stake in excusing Severian of anything. He can be, he could be a monster as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. But the point is, you know, it's not really a, a matter of excusing him. Yeah. Like he says, there, this is a lot of layers going on in this chapter. And one of those layers is what is actually happening, mm-hmm. quite apart from what the meaning of, of what he's done is, or whether, or, or whether it's a sin, or whether it's a crime, or how horrible it is, or how culpable it is. What actually is happening is also something that is kind of important, at least to me, and it's probably the most important thing to me. Yeah, and I feel like it is somewhat intentionally made difficult. And we said whether whether or not that was a good thing on Will's part, that may have been a bad thing in this case. Yeah. But I mean, there are so many things that, that are in there that it seems like it is designed to make you think, well, wait, who was actually in the the wrong here? Or who, if not so much in the wrong, who's actually doing what? Like who's doing seduction? Who's doing punishing? Right. Who's doing, you know, whatever, because it's, I mean, there's otherwise, there's no reason to have Jalenta go through this whole talk about how, you know, she's going to capture an exultant or an Artar right, and exactly. how, how much she desirable and, and, you know, how much she can use Severian and get rid of him if she wants to. And yeah, the, all that other stuff. I mean, it's all definitely at play. I mean, we might have gotten, you know, the tone wrong or something like that, which is why I think it was really great for Joan Gordon and Diane Lambert to come on and take on this chapter and address issues that, you know, we were too dense to notice or articulate well. I feel like it's also one of those things that given, call it the post Me Too world or just whatever, it's, it feels like dealing with that issue is sort of always going to be overdetermined now. And Mm, that it's one that, yeah, he was writing it at a different time. Yes. Um, but also it's just, there's so many extra layers now that I think, you know, when Diana talked about how, you know, it just seems odd that rape is the one unforgivable sin, <laughs> um, you know, and there, there's a point yeah. to that, that, that it's, it, there is sort of a cultural, you know, mood right now that everybody is keyed into, yeah. whether you agree with it or disagree with it or whatever, you're more aware of that layer of things. So, yeah, so it, it just makes it, for me, at least makes it harder to approach the chapter. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. Clearly. Well, and, but you know, whatever Wolf intended in this chapter, I don't get the sense that he was excusing Severian or, oh, no. No. and, or as many people online do approach this chapter, that he's somehow indulging in his own fantasies. Yeah. Which the, I uh, don't, yeah, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't buy that one, Yeah, but uh, you know, it's a big world out there. <laughs> we can disagree. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I guess I kind of bristled and it it may have come off harsher for me than uh, Aurora Boraquest uh, intended it. But uh, yeah, I really did bristle. <laughs> I did. I was excusing Severian. I don't, yeah, I wasn't just excusing him, but I do want to know what's going on. And uh, Christopher Taylor on Reddit says, uh, I'm not going to dwell on the consent issue. I think you covered it well, and I broadly agree with what you were saying, but I was struck this time by the association of the Ninifar boats with the swans like ice. Elsewhere, 
in the new sun, of course. Ice is associated with Erebus. So the mm-hmm. swans yeah. gain an association with death, like the ninophars. The fragrantly spiced pillows suggest some sort of aphrodisiac applications to further heighten or encourage the mood. And then they drift past scenes of other people engaged in similarly dissolute activities. If nothing else, we are being given an illustration of the decadent state of the Commonwealth society, possibly with undertones of how the higher classes are being engulfed by the megatherian cult. Hmm. I definitely like the associations. Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not it's it's intended to be megatherian, I don't know, but I like with whether you intended it or not, I think it, it works. And it would also be interesting because then, frankly, the different kinds of sex. I mean, this is obviously not going to be procreative, reproductive mm-hmm. sex that's better for the the race or whatever. <laughs> um, so you've got this sort of, yeah, decadent approach to it, which, I yeah, I suppose you could. Yeah. Uh, he's got his own correction. Um I would quibble, however, with the suggestion that this is the first time Severian has wanted to hurt someone. Oh, I suppose we said that. Yeah, I think I said that when about how it's the first time he's really wanted to punish someone. Mm-hmm. He says, while his usual approach to such things has been professional and clinical, there is an underlying desire to prove his competence. And there was his disappointment at not being able to demonstrate the two apricots at the Padilla's Gate. Interesting how he was motivated by his desire to show off to a girl. Yep, yep. I might say those are still, in a certain way, professional rather than personal yeah. reasons. Like, yeah, like yeah to show just off, personal but, pride. Yeah, in his, yeah but I get oh, it. I mean, well, he did celebrate uh at the uh, execution of marwenna i will yeah. note that yeah yeah because he was just so relieved that it would turned out okay <laughs> yeah and he did randomly kill all of his attackers on the uh, giant elephant before yeah yeah before but was it, it wasn't but, necessary yeah. <laughs> but but he still didn't seem to have the the like enthusiasm overwhelming pressure to punish yeah. someone yeah it was still right, kind right. of he showing had, uh, off yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Just the whole point is just I think was that this is one of the few times that Severian kind of describes himself as doing some causing physical pain or trauma or something out of a sort of passionate core. Yeah. Intentional. Exactly. Yeah. I think. Oh, oh, uh, Christopher also uh, really likes the sponsor ads. Well, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Patronize them. So we got to be rolling in all those precious, precious Asimis and Chrysoses. So let's see. Uh, Mike Farrar. Says this is a chapter that makes you want to take a shower after reading (laughs) because you feel dirty. And you guys are right. There's something we're supposed to take away from it. But I can't figure out what it is either. I, I feel you. I feel you, Mike. Yeah, so he has his own idea about what's going on. He says, I think Jalinda has been ordered by Talos to go off with Severian, and I think Baldanders wants genetic material from Severian, which he'll recover later and use to make the Catamite. The purpose of that being, aside from being, you know, the new house for Baldi's brain, could be to pass the Herodules test. Hmm. He's not, he goes on further. It's pretty uh, pretty intricate. And uh, involved, and I don't know, I'm going to withhold judgment on it. Yeah, the one part that does make me think about that is the fact that Severian does hear, you know, Jalenta and Talos have some kind of argument or whatever, something's going on before she comes back out. 
So, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could say that maybe she didn't want to take Severian out, but Talos made her, you know, and I don't, I don't know. There's so little that we know about what actually goes on there. We talked about how we thought that it was, could even have been possibly Severian misinterpreting, you know, a hit or a strike or something for, you know, who knows what Talos could be doing to, you know, strap up, <laughs> strap up <laughs> Jalenta or whatever, if the corset needed tightening, who knows? Um, but yeah, it, it could well have been something else. And I didn't even think about that at the time is that little moment, just possibly suggesting that Talos is involved somewhere with Jalenta taking Severian off. As for the, the catamite bit with, with his genetic material, I feel like Mike may have another story going on there. Um, <laughs> but, yes. not, not that I'm saying you're totally wrong. I'm just like, I, I don't, I feel like there's, there's some steps in there. I need to figure yeah, out. Yeah. I used to believe that the catamite was just a, f- flat out clone of Typhon, just a, like a, a kybit. But uh, someone pointed out, you know, the, the giant infant has golden hair. So it's something else going on. Actually, it was uh, B Sharp who brought this up, uh, Lee Berman. His idea was that maybe it's a clone of Typhon. But uh, Mike Farrar does uh, bring up something about the play. He says, uh, Jalenta performs naked in the play with Severian later that day and tries to seduce him as two different characters, Jai and the Contessa. Hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that part, too, as we're, you know, we're, we're obviously talking about the play already. But yeah, who what's the seduction when you see those kind of seductions happen in the play? Is that related to Jalenta or is it something else going on? And I think... I think it's supposed to be a possibility, but I have a feeling Mark's going to say it's going in a different way. Also, a Neuromancer, who's a new journeyman patron, he says, uh, thank you for your efforts with this chapter, Chalenta. I believe you approach the mark as you ponder why it is that Severian would want to have intimate relations with Chalenta, and also why would Chalenta turn her attention to Severian in the first place? He says, I assert that Jalinta's power is working constantly, overtly and subtly, on a conscious level, so that Severian is aware of Jalinta as a constant distraction while with the thespian troop, and on an unconscious level also. Only Dorcas's presence and Severian's devotion to Dorcas helps keep Severian from falling under Jalinta's influence and power of suggestion, which may be part hypnotic suggestion and partly an emanation of pheromones. Notice how all Jalinta needs to do is to wait for Dorcas to be preoccupied with stage decorating. Once Dorcas is some physical distance from Severian, Jalinta easily entices Severian to accompany her into the gardens of the house absolute. Yeah, I will just bring up uh, something that uh, we noted in the, during the chapter you know, we get all this from Severian's side. <laughs> For all mm-hmm. we know, Jalinta had no intention. Yeah. I mean, that's all. That's not really my preferred theory, but it's something that can't be ignored. Yeah. Anyway, he's got a really long post, but it's involved and interesting. Um, check it out. Check it out. On Facebook, John Kassane, he has interesting uh, questions about Jalinta's, uh, how to pronounce her name. He says... Jolinta? I've 
been saying Yolinta for years. <laughs> yeah, okay, he's just he's clearly trying to stir up a big fight. So, <laughs> well, it is it's a it's a question, right? Cuz at first I was like, "Oh yeah, well, well, South America, so it could be Yolinta." But then I started to think, "Oh, but that would wouldn't it be Holenta cuz with the J?" <laughs> and then they were like, "Well, if it's Portuguese, then it might be Yolenta, and if it's if it's Spanish, well, I knew, then it would be Yeah, Holenta. when I was learning Spanish, there was a I had a teacher who would like Instead of yo, he would say jo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Uh, and I asked him about that, and he says, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I could see it. I could see it. Yeah. So, and I think I've heard other people do that in the past, and it might be, I mean, in my head, part of the reason I don't do it, I think, well, the main reason I don't do it is just because I never did. <laughs> so, but the, <laughs> but the main reason, like, I, I didn't intentionally do it afterwards was because having Spanish pronunciation or whatever regional South American pronunciation that many years in the future after it's also been passed <laughs> through, you know, an, a translation that Wolf is right. doing from his own. It just, then I'm just not sure. I mean, you sure you still have the words. I mean, you have Madison, you have Mate, you've got, you know, other kinds of things. So it, you certainly could, but right. I, yeah, that was kind of my reasoning, or at least that's how I rationalized just still doing what I always did. Yeah, well, so I, I asked, <laughs> so do you pronounce it Yaterna? And he says, no, I don't. I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he also says, Jolenta uh, getting called, quote, an interesting side piece is unintentionally funny. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Mike Lejeune says, Jolenta chemically inducing concupiscence in others got me thinking about Baldander's mace in sort of the, of the lictor. Fear induced via ultrasonics, lust induced via pheromones. I'd buy it, although the Kumeyan doesn't really confirm it later in the Stone Town. That's well, that's absolutely true. I wonder though, to what extent her hypnotic suggestion has the the power that we're talking about all by itself. Honestly, I still feel like it should be rather strong just because once Talus is gone, it does seem like the spell wears off and it's not just physical. It's like, like all of a sudden Severian says things that are essentially kind of like, you can start to see the seams fall apart, you know? Yeah. um, Yeah. It's not that exactly, but it did make me think that there is something else going on. Like it, you know, we talked about it being magical future tech or something like that, you know, that, um, but that does affect either how she projects or how other people might respond to her. Um, I don't think it goes so far as mind control. Like, you know, I, but I do think there is, it, I don't know. Think of it like pheromones, pheromones on steroids or something. Like that. I don't know. <laughs> well, it is kind of interesting the way she, her features blend into uh, Agia's, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Michael Lejeune goes on and he says, I think the Sev Jalenta passage exemplifies the worst sort on both sides of the, quote, search for love. Wolf talks about this with James Jordan in an interview, and he gives Severian a chance to reminisce about his various relationships. James Jordan says, are Severian's various liaisons along the way false forms of matrimony or in some sense symbolic of it? And Gene Wolfe answered, they are more manifestations of the search for love, which I think is a great quest of life. What we go into life really looking for is love. He's a man who has been born into a very perverse background. 
who is gradually trying to become better. I think that the true ideal of love for any person is God. It isn't another human being. Well, that's a really good quote. Yeah. I like that. And it does go back to the sort of allegorical thing that we talked about, how it could be that Severian is not so much an example of maybe the universal search for love, but sort of how this perverse guy is is trying to to break out of his shell and each of these different relationships with women mm-hmm. are him trying to in some ways try on another form of his himself um and and see how he relates to them uh just because all he can do sort of is explore um right so that that could go with the idea of like when he says in the earth that in some ways he was always what they wanted him to be if he really doesn't have any other guide of how to behave in you know not in his guild's social setting then that would make sense you know that's that's one way to try on personalities yeah Yeah. well uh see philip bonner uh points out something that uh, i'm also interested in uh, as we talk about the play he says this part of the book is really the dead man's curve of wolf scholarship the whiplash of going from the new hatched chick straight into eschatology and Genesis has sent many <laughs> into the ketamine clinic. <laughs> and uh, also on Facebook, Daniel Baradas, he says, great episode, but I missed a reference to Jonas. Yeah, yeah. He points out Jonas is, is Jonas's great love. And Severian has just promised to tell Jolinta how much uh, Jonas loved her. Mm. And, you know, he never yeah. gets around to that as far as we know. And here he is, you know, acting incredibly dishonorably with this woman who, you know, when you have a friend, you try to treat the people that are important to them the way they would want them treated when, you know, they're not around. And yeah. this is really not a very good friend. No. And especially since the last thing Jonas says was, I'll be back for her, right? Yeah. He's, I'm going to mm. know. Yeah, I I feel bad. You're right. We never mentioned that. Um, I don't know. I'm running through ideas like, could this be not again, not to excuse it, but as part of this because he's so he misses Jonas and doesn't understand why he left, and so he's taking it out on her. I I don't think so, but um, but yeah. that definitely does mess up the search for love thing because <laughs> now you've got somebody here like, not only am I not really searching for love, this is I'm not much of a friend either. <laughs> not just hurting Jalenta, but also hurting. The, friend the the thing right. he says is the closest to a, a real friend hmm. yeah yeah austin beadman on facebook is uh, you know really trying to explore and understand all the questions about this chapter uh, along with everybody else he, you know, he says it does the technological manipulation of jalenta cause each person to perceive her as the thing they desire did severian desire a tall noble woman to punish sexually um, did the manipulation done to Jalinta cause Severian's behavior? Does it fit into how Severian's manipulation will lead others to try to hurt him? I, I don't know, but maybe there's something there. Um, he also says, when they return to camp afterwards, you said Wolf didn't mention what Jalinta said or did, but that's not accurate for this book. Severian chose not to write her reaction. What is it? that he either couldn't deal with or didn't want us to know. Yeah. Yeah. Could well be. It's interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it it all comes down to the, the distance that Wolf puts between us and the actual narration by Mm -hmm. having these things told in first person 
by someone who has motivations of his own to tell or not to tell. Yeah. Let's see. Also, uh, the Joan and Diane uh, episode talking about Jolento. A lot of love for that one. Mm -hmm. So feeling underappreciated. We just bring in guests here and they just take over, <laughs> steal, uh, steal all the appreciation from the listeners. Somebody, was it, I think it was Austin Beeman said like, they should have their own show. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Midtown 70. He says, Joan and Diane nailed it. Everything I was thinking when I heard the chapter analysis, they touched on in more. Jalinta is the embodiment of lust and dehumanizing effect of sexual objectification. And um, Anira Manser says, my appreciation of Joan Gordon and Diane Lambert's insights into Jalinta and the resulting interesting discussion. Uh, thank you for hosting those two scholarly fans of Wolf's work. He liked uh, Diane's noting the uh, key to the universe as applicable also to the Book of the New Sun itself. Uh, Diane notes that Wolf's work is challenging readers on all three of those levels, the practical, actual meaning, the level of reflected meaning, and the transubstantial meaning. The characters themselves carry and embody themes, metaphors, and symbolism. And he really appreciates Joan for noting how the focus of the Rereading Wolf podcast has mainly been upon exegesis, the deep dive and the search for ideas. Well, uh, that you know, all that's true, but not just us, but but generally wolf scholarship, you know, totally. Because I mean, let's face it, ninety percent of the people who sit down and write about uh, you know these books, uh, they're men. <laughs> There's something about us mm -hmm. that we got to you know take things and tear them apart. And uh, yeah, she's she, Joan is right that there's something going on holistically as well. Oh, yeah. I think in the end, we're working towards the same thing. It's just a matter yeah. of approaches and stuff. Right. Yeah, sure. And uh, Joan point out, uh, he says that Jolinda's story really is a tragedy because of her decision to make a bargain with Dr. Talos and what resulted from that. More appreciation for identifying how Dr. Talos is so dangerous because he lacks a soul. That lack enables Dr. Talos to act without empathy in pursuit of furthering his mission. And Joan asks, did Jolenta ask for this transformation? And that is a moment we do not witness as readers. The meeting with the Kermayan implies that Dr. Talos not only lured the waitress into a further discussion where he made substantial promises, but when she hesitated, he used some device or spell of his own to bedazzle her and secure her agreement. Such an act further fits with Dr. Talos's amoral transformation of the waitress into a starlet who would be an alluring draw for the masses attending the plays. Mm -hmm. Jolinta's literally enchanting beauty would ensure the generation of wealth for Baldanders until they had the funds that they needed. You know, he goes on. There's, be sure and check it out in the subreddit post for Joan and Diane. And uh, Mike Farrar actually goes on to say, Severian believes Jolinta and Dorcas trysted while he was separated from the company. The passage where he voices this comes at or just after the death of little Severian in Sword of the Lictor. After the play and the attack on the Herodules, there is a moment between Jolinta and Dorcas, when Talos says the troop must dissolve and go their separate ways. 
Thrax or Deaterna. And Severian says that Jalinta and Dorcas look at each other, and then Dorcas says that she'll go with Severian to Thrax. Jalinta, who loves Talos, wants to go to Deaterna. The look might be another piece of Severian's evidence of a Jalinta-Dorcas relationship. Certainly, the way Jalinta talks of how women react to her nearly as strongly as men means that there is a possibility. So Ori Kworski does have an idea for why this chapter is preceding the play. He says, I think the answer is that although her unnatural beauty and power and sexual allure obscures this fact, Jalinta is the only normal person in the entire troupe. She is the true epitome of Earth and represents, to paraphrase Charles Foster Kane, talking about another malleable ingenue, a, quote, cross-section of the public. The everyone is Severian theory aside, it's difficult to believe that Nessus is full of people remotely like Severian or Dorcas or Baldanders, but extremely easy to assume that the vast majority of them share Jalinta's mindset. Ah, that's pretty interesting. I like that. I do too. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> and Adrian Ion says on Facebook, I have only one thought regarding this chapter. What is Thecla's influence on this scene? She mm. is a sadist. She is used to getting her way. One has to wonder if in the inner logic of the scene, Prialzabo Severian would have committed such an act. He does refuse to go brotheling after his first experience. And maybe it took Thecla's amoral, exultant mind to make him do it. But then he says, on second thought, the other option that pops in my head is that after being more or less taken advantage of by Thecla, he goes on and does the same thing to Jalenta, only much worse. The prey becomes predator, or maybe Jalenta is just an abuse magnet. Ah, oh, wow, that's mm. cold. <laughs> but a lot there. But yeah, not having Thecla's input on any of this is is interesting, and I think some of it depends on how you, if you know, if Thecla is really just sort of memories in his head and not actively there, then that would be part of the explanation. But there are times when he does seem to have see things through Thecla's perspectives. Um, right. But yeah, what, what was she doing here? If she really was much more cold and calculating, then maybe she could have had a hand in, in pushing him to do something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, but it is, it, I agree. It's notable that she's not there. But it all falls back to what are the motivations of this scene? And yeah. what you believe Severian's motivation is, what you believe Jalenta's motivation is, what do you believe is actually going on in this scene, why it is here, which, again, is the yep. thing that kind of drives me batty. Um, why is, you know, this this scene, as we're going to point out, you know, moves into the play. It actually, the chapter doesn't end until the play starts. Mm -hmm. And... Maybe there's something there. I don't know. I do think that Wolf chose not to show uh, the event from Jalenta's perspective. And yeah. I'm curious about that, too. All to say, Wolf doesn't leave us a lot of levers to go on here. And if people are taking it, you know, in the worst way uh, for, for Gene Wolf's personal reputation, then, you know, I'm afraid the author is the only one to blame. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, let's see, on YouTube, Marcus Wander had some really interesting comments uh, about just about uh, the book of the new sun generally. He uh, notes that, you know, we, we talk a lot about the Gnostic influences of this chapter, about maybe even the Hindi influences and the Zoroastrian, not a lot of talk about Egyptian influences. Mm -hmm. And he sees a lot of them. I may move this over to Reddit so that people can read it and check it out because it's really kind of an, it was kind of a lot of interesting insights into this. And uh, we do know that Wolf was interested in uh, Egyptian culture and, and mythology. Uh, he did do Soldier of Sidon next, mm -hmm. of course, in the post-millennial. And I see a lot of Osiris mythology embedded into the Book of the Long Sun. And that works too, because isn't there a lot of connections people claim between Osiris and the Christ imagery in a lot of places? Too? That's true. That's absolutely true. So on Reddit, uh, Christopher Taylor is stepping back to talk about the uh, personifications chapter with Severian talking to Dorcas in the herb garden. It says, uh, when you were commenting on Severian mentioning Valeria at the beginning of the chapter, I got this fun picture of Severian worrying whether she was looking over his shoulder while he was writing. Yes, I know I'm telling everyone about the time I boned this really hot chick, but look, I'm <laughs> making sure to tell them that she wasn't really a patch on you, honey. <laughs> Honest. <laughs> he says, on a more serious note, I wonder if the presence of the herb garden may be drawing Valeria into the picture. You mentioned elsewhere that Valeria is associated with wolves, wolf, reinforced here by, once again, mentioning her in first, but she's also regularly associated with roses, rose and rosemary. That's for remembrance. And I like that point about Valeria being in that way, possibly too, just hinted that that more than just that one mention of her at the beginning, uh, but, but that with some of the symbolism, she may be sort of haunting the chapter too. I kind of, I kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. And also I'd never quite made the, connection that she's associated with roses and rose i mean yeah, i didn't pick that one up i'm trying i was trying to think did we talk about that i is there in we've the talked atrium? about so many things hard to say i don't I remember know. any roses and roses in the uh, atrium, the atrium. Um, yeah and he also uh mentions the megathere the big giant sloth that severian encounters out on the the greens and he mentions that sometimes uh fur often has a greenish tinge to it due to algae growing in it. Whether such a feature would have applied to ground sloths, which may have been more active than modern tree sloths, this of <laughs> course is an open question. Yeah. Yeah. But the greenish stuff out the algae in there, I mean, that's definitely pointing towards humanity's future and the green man. So um, to have it sort of hovering around there. Yeah. Isn't... And the ballerina in the sky, the blue sky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to go back and, think about exactly how he brings it up there. If it really is kind of supposed to be some kind of foreshadowing or if yeah. we're just reading too much into it. <laughs> <laughs> and Carl on the uh, Patreon channel messaged us and he was very happy about us talking about his theories last time. And he says, love the podcast. Even my wife, who is not a Wolf fan, enjoys it. He says, you have lovely voices and the sponsor messages always make her laugh. Very cool. That's very nice. You keep the cooks and charlatans in business. 
We have new patrons since last time. First, we have one new journeyman patron, Oniramancer, who I think we've already mentioned once because he did some commenting, and also three new master level patrons. Those are the ones that get their musical tags along with a bunch of other goodies on Patreon. We'll start with Puzz. And like fuzz, I breeze through the sky. Charles Jenkins. Charles got a job in a factory. And Aaron Baker. As always, thank you guys so much for signing up. We always appreciate the help. We especially appreciate the help because we're already using some of that Patreon money to pay for organizing the Shadow of the Con, which, yes, is coming up. And we'll be giving out more information every time we put out an episode. But we're already trying to organize what we're going to do for hopefully two full days worth of stuff and leave you with plenty of other time if you're able to come to do other things at Worldcon. So, As always, thank you to everyone who signed up on Patreon. We really, literally couldn't do a lot of the stuff that we do without you. And we are, as always, gobsmacked by the help and the support. Okay, so we're not actually done with the Jalenta chapter, as I had mentioned before. We've got to lead into the play itself. And the full page or two is devoted to just setting up the play. Mm-hmm. And so um, brought on some help for this ride. And we're just going to see how that works out. I have been dreading the play, Craig, for so long. <laughs> I find it unwieldy. And for much of this book, I've, I've felt on stronger ground all the time. And people talk about how unlikely it is because so many of my theories are, you know, theory Jenga, where I just stack one on top of the other. But really, <laughs> it, the more I stack and can stack, the more confident I feel I'm right because I'm I can take you know one set and then I can stack it on. And it's still oh well, I, I understand this better now. I understand this better now. That's really where. And then I come to the play and it all comes crashing down. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. And then, and then I deal with you and Mark who sit around <laughs> metamorphizing uh, with your metaphors and your allegories. And I've, I, I don't know. Look, I admit I've had it my way for far too long. And now you guys are going to get to reign as king. Well, reign in a certain way, at least I think we're we're still kind of laying out a bunch of options. I don't know that we're actually settling on what we think is actually going on. Well, I I shouldn't say that we Mark, I think, feels like he's pretty clear on a lot. Yeah, he always always very clear. (laughs) I'm there are a lot of things I think he's probably right on. And I but but I'm still puzzling over some other things, too. But and we should also note that, as you probably noticed by the title of this episode, this is not the whole play that we're going to be talking no, about here. No. This is going to be a few episodes. Yeah, it's, it's going to be probably three or four before we're done. Yeah, because there's a lot to chew on and discuss and talk about. So Absolutely, yeah. But let's just get on in. All right, let's move on. Quick note, we did have a few recording challenges in the first few minutes of this one, but they clear up pretty quickly. Chapter 24, Dr. Talos's Play. All right, welcome. And we have Mark Aramini here with us to talk about the play. I, I, I'm really excited about this because I need some help on this. And I have, I have very low expectations for how successful this is going to be. And maybe a lot of people will be relieved of that, that I will finally be 
beaten and <laughs> will not will not be tearing up these chapters again. But uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Give it, and it's a good thing that got Mark here because uh, I don't always agree with Mark, but Mark has has a system. Mark has a perspective. I do have. A- we should say, wait, just for just to do due diligence, just in case there are people who haven't listened to you before, or uh, I can't imagine it's possible. But if there are people who are this far into Wolf who haven't come across your name before, so Mark is one of the few people who has written on Wolf academically in a sustained way. The second book of his projected. Wait, four. Let's four. Yeah, I was about to say. I was about to say three, and then I'm like, no, it's not three. It's four. Um, uh, four volume commentary on all of Wolf stuff has recently come out, which is available, and we'll put links up to that, which you should definitely get. But also, he's got a new set of videos that you're doing on YouTube, which is excellent. Yeah, I figured I'd I'd go after the Wizard Knight because I mean, I feel like. I do have a certain system there and it's very codified and that really exemplifies it. And so hopefully they'll be interested in what I have to say there. You know, it's, awesome. uh, we'll see. Cause I like the short and sweet, you know, I haven't ever done the chapter by chapter uh, spoken um, analysis before. So I figured I'd try that though and see if people liked it. Cool. Yeah. It works for me. <laughs> so, Absolutely. I can recommend it. So, okay. Well, let's see. We're in the middle of this play. Uh, we're starting the play, and uh, we are a few hours from sunset, or nightfall, as Severian calls it. About 48 hours since Severian and Jonas were captured in the house absolute grounds by the Praetorians. About two weeks, or more or less, uh, since Severian left the Madison Tower. Less than a month, maybe just a month, since Severian was elevated to journeyman in the uh, Shadow of the Torturer. As I've noted here and elsewhere, this chapter sits almost exactly in the middle of the trilogy that Gene Wolfe wrote when it was first submitted to the publishers, you know, before it was determined that the final volume was too long for a single volume. And the final volume was split into two, leaving the fourth volume too short. So Gene Wolfe, the author, wrote all the events of the storytelling contest in the final volume purely to fatten it up. All those fantastic stories, particularly the one by uh, the uh, Askian loyal to the group of 17 were added on. But let's just say this. If he did decide to create a story out of like Mao's little book sayings as filler, <laughs> that's pretty damn amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Just that would have been, been something. Yep, yep. But so this moved the play out of its central place as it was originally positioned in this highly structural book. And I do think the narrative of The Claw of the Conciliator is highly structured, just as the final chapter of Shadow was highly structured. And we'll have to consider some of those implications of that when we get to the end of this volume. So let's see. Severian has had not more than a few hours sleep this morning. And his sleep the night before was fitful, to say the least. His sleep the night before that was disturbed with the uh, young exultants breaking in and whipping him. Uh, Personally, I'd be in no shape to perform on stage or really any of the other things that Severian has been up to today. So let's see. Uh, Mark, how do we get here? 
So, you know, in the couple of chapters that leads up to this particular part, uh, something very interesting happens. And, you know, when I was rereading Claw the Conciliator this week, I noticed that I felt like a lot of the narrative was was very straightforward. But then all of a sudden, right, when he got into the house absolute there and he kind of stepped back through the painting into the second house, into Mm -hmm. the hidden scenes with the autark in that hydromancy chapter, that's where I felt like everything became symbolically relevant, allegorical, metaphorical, right? Everything that happened all of a sudden there, like even um, when the autark shows him that, that, that book more or less that he retrieves, right? There's an eclipse mm-hmm. on its door, you know, and he sees uh, in the leather of the book, he sees a dead man and he thinks that it's himself, mm-hmm. you know, and then he starts bleeding from the brow. And then as he leaves the room, he's like, okay, you're going to proceed through the gate of trees. And he goes to the Vatic fountain, which is basically prophecy, Right. The, the Vatican. Right. It's 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 a kind of prophetic uh, fountain there. And he sees a sword and a rose and then he sees the angry waves. And then when he flips the coin up into the sky, it, it reflects the light for a second. So it's like all of a sudden he stepped into purely metaphorical scenes. Right. And so when he goes through the gate of trees, this shows the progression right of the the story where it's going to go there. Right. And so. um you know, there's there's a couple other things that show up there, right? Dorcas, when he reunites with them, she reveals how she's terrified of water, right? And it makes plot sense why she did since she was buried there. But uh, she dreams that she's an unclean spirit, right? And that people will kind of see her that particular way and that she fears the water. And Severian says at that point that even the dirty water, the detritus, like it will rise again and be purified as rain. You know, and so, so much of this suddenly from that hydromancy chapter is about water and its purification and, and you know, the, the, the ship and the rose and all these things. And when he meets up with Jolenta again in that chapter, I think that that controversial scene is part of that symbolism. It's part of that allegorical and metaphorical scene where you have them on the water there and they are consummating something that she doesn't necessarily agree to, right? Because what you see is that when she falls asleep there and he's doing what he wants to do, you see that her will is not really involved. It's on the water. It's not going to lead to anything there, right? And so we have a whole situation where I think that's allegorical and symbolic of the fate of Earth as well. You know, and 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 that it's on the water, I think, is also important. And so I think this is really leading up to the play Eschatology and Genesis as well. Um, so I do think that all of that is important to think about, like how much of it is about prophecy, how much of it is about what has come before, what's going to happen um, from from everything there and just the positioning of water and its importance. So this really is the end that Jean initially envisioned what was going to happen after the new sun came. And it becomes explicit in eschatology and Genesis. But all of this is, I think, highly symbolic. Uh, and so that whole scene where, you know, Jolenta and Severian are together on the boat. I, I want to read into it something about Thecla's interference to get even with his living lovers, more or less. She can hurt them both. But I don't necessarily think that that's in the text there. You see her cruelty in the antechamber, but I don't think that she really is actually the active member at that particular point. But but it would be cool if she was. Hmm. 
we didn't even think about that. Yeah. We were talking about it, but that interesting. So was what you'd be saying then is that something about Severian forcing himself on Jalenta on the water is kind of like Severian forcing the flood on a yes. somewhat unwilling and, earth, but for something else in the long run. Yes, exactly. And also, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a metaphor for like what mankind is. Right. And so Baldanders is kind of augmented himself and it's a dead end more or less. Jalenta has been altered by Dr. Talos, but it's not going to survive. Right. She's going to die. And then we're left with that saying at the end that we are capable only of being what we are remains our unforgivable sin. We can't really change in that particular way. And that's why something new needs to come. And so that scene there is symbolic of what's going to happen to Earth, right? That the past is kind of this dead, uh, there, there's, no, there's no future in it. There's no fecundity. Things have to be cut off, right? But it also has to be uh, in a way that Earth doesn't even really agree to it, right? Those sailors, they resist it. They don't say yes in a way. And so um, I think that that whole scene is, is symbolic of what we're really getting at in uh, Earth of the New Sun. So the, the rape of Jolenta, right? It's really about uh, something, fecundity and sexuality and all that stuff is important. And it's going to be important in eschatology and Genesis as well as we'll see with the demon Jahi in a minute. So, uh, yeah, I think all that is innately tied to it, including the, 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 the gravidness, right, of the White Fountain, where it kind of is engendered by a sexual act. And so I think that's important. Um, but cutting off those old things, like the incestuous relationship with Dorcas, right, it doesn't lead anywhere. The old standards of human beauty, they're not going to lead anywhere either. It has to change significantly. So I think I think this is all from hydromancy on to eschatology and Genesis and even the next chapter, highly symbolic in its implication. Hmm. Yeah. I think I have some questions about what that <laughs> what that means for for the overall interpretation. Yeah. But we'll that's kind all of right. a different different aspect. I'd rather get into the play. Sure. Let's see. Before we move into this chapter, we have a few paragraphs from you know, the last chapter, chapter 23, uh, Jalenta, where Severian sets up for us the performance of the play. Mm -hmm. The hours left between sunset are spent, quote, listening to Dr. Talos chaffer with various officials of the House Absolute and rehearsing the play. Chaffer originally meant to haggle, but it's a British euphemism for small talk. And I guess that's, you know, what's meant here. Now, uh, remember, Severian's only experience with this play is the half-improvisational role that he and Dorcas took on the night before. But that doesn't matter because the play is conducted primarily by Talos narrating it and people acting at his suggestions. So the script is mostly suggestions. And no one followed the play word for word. So what we have presented here in this book by Severian is not what Talos wrote on the, quote, fragments of soiled paper that they passed around hand to hand that afternoon, which often contain, he says, no more than hints for improvisations. Instead, it is what they actually said as recorded by Severian's own perfect memory, or as Severian said, quote, as it might have been recorded by some diligent clerk in the audience, and as it was, in fact, recorded by the demonic witness who dwells behind my eyes. <laughs> so we readers are at once being distanced from the play as it might have been conceived or written and receiving a detail of the chaotic version as it was actually performed. 
Now, I'm going to break in real quickly right here and just say that one of the things that I really do believe about these set pieces in Wolf is that they're transcendently true. So anytime you get one of these visions, one of these prophecies, right, or these dream sequences, they actually do show something that's true, even if Dr. Talos could never have actually known that in consciously in his construction, that it's actually metatextual in nature. It's like a big finger pointing at things. Uh, so I think that that distance uh, is not necessarily something that we need to worry about when we're interpreting it. Really? So yeah. Because they end up being more true than Talos would have written it. Is that your point? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. That's entirely possibly true. But then there's still that level of of unreliability, right? Talos is working from something. And presumably, if there is a, a lost book of the new sun that he's basing this on and, you know, he and it's you know it's it's fragmentary anyway but even so this is just what uh you know dorcas wouldn't have known dorcas wouldn't known what was in the book of the new sun uh, jolenta didn't know so this is just you know severian and dorcas and uh, jolenta all kind of putting to, putting it together uh, by by chance how do you think that works out so that it's actually more true than written there is a place that it comes from, though, because when he goes back in time, Severian recounts what happened to him, right? He tells people. And so that can alter a little bit and be changed. And maybe some of that trickled down to Talos through the time stream there. But, uh, you know, just like you don't need to know about symbols for them to affect you, you don't really need to consciously know this story for it to survive somehow. And even if it's recreated, it's still true because that's just providence right just like all those evil things serve good uh these these stories they they survive they become mythic they're they're there they're real they happen so i i just i tend to trust these kind of things uh quite distinctly and the other thing that's interesting is that eschatology genesis if you look at it in the set pieces some things seem to have been from before and some things come from the very end it's not all just what's going to come it's stuff that's happened before as well or is happening even at that moment like for example you know jahi and uh meshian fighting right there are there are some aspects of that that resemble some of the uh the conflict between you know two female characters that are interested in severian that are happening right there yeah I I think this is, Mark, this is probably where we're going to end up clashing at some point. Uh, I expect this to be much more of a, a strict allegory, especially as we progress and get deeper in into the acts. I mean, there are there is some winking for, of Talos at the audience. There is some of that. But and yet and yet and yet I expect this to hew much closer to what happened than otherwise. And I. I don't know exactly. Uh, I can, it's not like I can say that I, I can understand what's going on because I don't. But that's what I think is the intent. And we'll, let's just we'll get to I that. Will break in as moderator and I'll say, why don't we go to the details? <laughs> so we get first a description of the setting of the theater. It's outdoorish. I kind of imagine it as a slight little valley set in a cove with doors to the oh. underground house absolute on various sides. The horizon, or as Severian calls it, Earth's laboring margin, has climbed above the red disk of the sun. That is to say, the sun doesn't 
set in Severian's Commonwealth. The horizon of Earth, as we've noted before, climbs up the sky. It crawls up the sun itself and the stars. And let's see, there's long-winged bats flying around. Maybe we should think of fruit bats or flying foxes or maybe something stranger with really oversized wings. There's a green quarter moon just above the eastern horizon. I've really been keeping track of the phases of the moon. I, I know that um, Michael Andre Gerisi did. Maybe he can interject on how long we can tell that has been going on based on the phases of the moon at this point. Severian details, as I said, that the area where the stage is set up is just a slight dip, barely less than a plane, set between a surrounding, quote, gentlest, turf-covered, rolling hills. The subtle valley is accessed via doors set in these hills. I suppose the doors lead to the house absolute below, but the size of the doors vary. I suppose depending on the architecture of the rooms and hallways, these doors exit. Some are wider, he says, than the entrance to an ordinary private room, and some are as wide as the doors of a basilica. A basilica in ancient Rome was an assembly hall. As the doors open, the light from the inner rooms, quote, mistinged light spills from them. Since I doubt there are fog machines running in House Absolute, I suppose we have a slight fog. From the doors are flagged paths, that is, paths of square or rectangular flat stones. The flagged paths lead toward the tiny arch of our proscenium. A proscenium is, I, I'm sure, you know, there's more to it, but it's the stage. Uh, in ancient times, it was under an arch, and in this case, it's a very small arch over the stage. The flagged paths are, quote, dotted with men and women in fantastic costumes of a mask. That's a, a costume party outfits. So, you know, originally we had pageants, which is essentially a parade where people would wear costumes and bright clothing. A mask is a localized pageant. You don't walk the streets. You stay in one place. So everyone at this diocese is wearing costumes, mostly costumes that are historical. As Varian says, quote, drawn largely from remote ages, and Severian can detect that this is the context of these costumes, but frankly, he has only, as he calls it, a smattering of history based on what he learned in Master Palamon's classes and from Thecla's memory. So even though he knows they are drawn from remote ages, he doesn't really know anything about most of them. It's like when you go to a con and, and you know the cosplayers are comic book or movie references, but you might not know exactly what the references are. Right? Masks, too, by the way, are the kind of plays that were they were super, super popular in um, early modern period, the Renaissance, that nobles would have these put on, where they were these like mixtures of sort of allegorical presentations, but then also had that whole sort of pageantry thing with them. The costumes were incredibly elaborate. The sets were incredibly elaborate. And they'd be these like massive productions with a script and... Um, performances and dances and feasts, uh, but they would often be performed like one time. Um, so yeah. they were incredibly luxurious things. 
Uh, let's see. There are servants walking around with trays that have, quote, cups, tumblers, and heaped with delicious smelling meats and pastries. Oh, we've all seen the movies with this scene, although I've never been to one of these, even at a fancy wedding reception with servants walking around with trays. Uh, facing the stage are chairs that are made of ebony, very dark wood, and black velvet. So there are chairs designed to blend in to the with the darkened audience when the play starts. And Severian calls the chairs delicate as crickets. That's an interesting description, I think. But there's standing room as well, and it looks like a lot of people prefer that. And throughout the whole performance, there are people coming and going. This play is pure background for a lot of people. For most people, it's probably just one event among many going on at the Thiasis. Again, imagine what most people do at a con or state fair or a musical festival. Some people are just passing through. Whatever the purpose of the play is, it's, you know, it's not the hinge on which Severian and the High Rose, you know, justify the autarky to the masses. And while it's going on, quote, hylas sing in the trees. Hylas are tree fogs. There are nightingales trilling. Male nightingales famously sing at night. They got a mention when Severian left the fountain on the way of the green room. A nightingale is a kind of thrush, and to my eye, they look like a cross between a wren and a sparrow. And the whole time the play is going on, you can see the walking statues on the surrounding hills moving along in their incomprehensible duties. So I'm going to break in real quickly here. So what, what did you guys say about the statues? I haven't caught up to the last two or three episodes, but what have you guys been saying about them? We have no idea. We, yeah. <laughs> we have no idea. But I, I there's something. Yeah, is what okay. I know. So they, they could be like they could be like a ways for the high rows to spy on th- events at House Absolute. Heck, they could be ways that the Megatherians. Uh, spy on things going on at House Absolute. We don't really know. I, they do I seem more like associated with Iron. Yeah, yeah. And I do like the description where uh, he talks about them as sort of like an otherworldly beauty, like some kind of much more and, perfect angelic kind of And yes, they're based thing. on what humanity has become more or less, right? So they're right. more like the Hieros, uh, like they're a representation of the Hieros, really. And so I right. think that's going to be important in the play as well when you get that one memorial one that was actually the thing that I had the hardest time placing within the context of did this scene happen did it not where you know jahi tempts the statue and then the statues like digging into the the mound more or less uh trying to get in there um but i i think i found where that actually is so we'll come back to that later yeah 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 let's cool. let cool. the problems of tomorrow worry for yes themselves. yes yep. yes <laughs> so uh with that 15 minute 20 minute lead in we're ready to crack open the play it seems obvious that we're not going to get through this in a single episode. But in this play, all the parts are played by Talos, Baldanders, Jolenta, uh, Dorcas, and Severian. As near as I can tell, Jolenta, Dorcas, and Severian spend most of the play completely naked. And this is considered normal. Because it is normal. <laughs> well... <laughs> I would beg to differ. I don't know what it lo- what it's like in your neighborhood, but well, we we don't have the Zoom uh, camera on, but <laughs> and yeah, Mark is is busily putting on plays all every day. Mm-hmm. So so we begin. It says, 
eschatology in Genesis being a dramatization, as he claimed, of certain parts of the lost book of the new son. Yeah, the title of the play is a sort of parallel to the title of the first chapter, Resurrection and Death. Uh, the words are in reverse of the expected orders. The, the word eschatology means literally the study of the last. It refers to, quote, expectations of the end of the present age, human history, or the world itself. Uh, it's from the word eschatos, meaning last. Genesis literally means in the beginning. It means, you know, the beginning. The convention in Wolf's uh, Soldier of the Mist of each chapter title being the first words of the chapter is an allusion to this, I think, because in Genesis, the first words are in the beginning. And, and that's the way the chapters, I guess, end up being titled. So the play's name is the end and the beginning. And this is a subtle reference to the coming of the new sun when earth will be destroyed and a new world is born. Uh, so says I, right? I agree. Yeah. And it is also a reference to the first and last books of the Christian Bible, uh, Genesis and Revelation, which is appropriate because supposedly this is a dramatization of the lost book of the new son. And now we're getting to the parts of the play that have always confused me. That's oh, right. Quickly. The beginning. <laughs> before, before we move on, I just wanted to say very quickly, uh, the other thing that this does, eschatology and Genesis, is that it equates um, the end of time with the beginning in a way such that like, hey, what happened in the earliest, you know, like uh, biblical prehistory there? Well, the flood happened, right? When this when this era of man like was purged of its wickedness and the Nephilim were kind of purged from from uh, existence as well, supposedly, or something like that going on with, you know, the, mm -hmm. the tradition there. Uh, so it, it equates them, right? Where, hey, what is what is going to be the mechanism of the end? The same thing that was the mechanism of the beginning, really, right? Uh, so I think that it, it does a little bit more than just, you know, putting us at bookends here. It actually equates the manner of the end with, with something that happened at the very start. So like uh, when God moves upon the water, so we went back to the very beginning and then... Or at the very least, the flood in Genesis, yeah. Yeah. So let's see, we're, um, we're reading the book of the new sun. So I would expect the acts of this play to be recognizable in the book that I am reading. And some, many readers, claim that this is obviously so if you've read all the books and Earth of the New Sun. But, but aside from a very few peaks and valleys, I do not see this. My expectation in reading this play is that we are expected to interpret this play to see Severian's story in the way that a Christian would attempt to search for and reinterpret the current events and find them in the book of Revelation. And that is, you know, we expect in Revelation to find historical events transformed into metaphor. However, in reading this, guys, I don't see that. With great familiarity and with a tremendous penchant for interpreting literal text stories and events metaphorically and metaphorical illusions literally, much to the frustration of many, I cannot detect Severian's story in almost any of this. So I recommend that after you read the play, you go to chapter 41 of Earth of the New Sun and you read like five chapters there. And you'll see, you know, when Severian steps out of his sanitaph more or less there and he's kind of deposited back in the earth of, you know, of his future time period uh, that 
it will reenact so many of the things, especially in the second half of eschatology and Genesis. Like it's even the the statue will show up there. So I think yeah. that it is there, but mm. um, some of it's it too thin, too thin, Mark. It's too it's thin. It's not thin. It's like line <laughs> by line. And Baldanders even plays Nod again there. Baldanders comes back as Nod in that scene. Like it's it's like a direct reenactment. Forty one through like forty six. Yeah, I really feel like I, I, I'm familiar with what you're talking about, but I really feel like that those scenes seem to be riffing on the play rather than the other way because no i mean i i don't feel like i can i can have an understanding of what's going on in the play but maybe maybe i might keep a I'm open mind because i i don't want to be at loose ends so hopefully you'll be you'll be able to prove yourself right um so let's see we got, well, let's bring this up um points that drive me crazy uh who's jahi uh who are the two soldiers who's the generalissimo nod the statue the autark Contessa and her mate. I can see how there's like, Mark, I can see how there's parallel people in this book, but most of the acts that they perform, I do not see them found here. And I think no. my only concern with it being like, cause I, I agree with you, Mark, that I do think that, that earth does lay out a lot of what's in the play. And I suppose what I want to be, not that I disagree with it. What I want to be able to do is see if there's some way that the events of the play could make some kind of sense for someone reading just those four volumes without earth of the new sun, because yes. if we, if this we don't have yes. earth, right. But that's, that's what it, you see what I mean, right? Like, it's like it, in some ways it's like, okay, earth is supposed to spell things out, but let's imagine that only these four books were written. Yes. And um, this is the I end. still, yeah. yeah. And, and I still want to be able to get the, obviously I can't get the step-by-step step necessarily, but I want to be able from the play to get the point. And that's, that's what I want to. And I think, I think we can, we see exactly okay, what happens cool. to earth. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, now, as you guys know, I've latched on to a way out for the story, potentially, and that is that this is not the story of this book of the New Sun. This relates to the events in the life of the first Severian. The lost book of the New Sun is not the book that our Severian is writing. It's the book that the first Severian wrote and passed on, and it's lost because, you know, it was left in the previous universe iteration or overwritten in the timeline or in the abandoned many worlds of a past branch. So, you know, depending on your interpretation, this begins to make a lot of sense based on Severian's explanation of the first Severian at the end of Citadel of the Autark. However, I'm still not satisfied because like you say, Craig, although per Severian's telling, you know, the first Severian's life is quite different in many ways. He didn't carry the claw. Probably there was no claw, the conciliar. He didn't travel north to Thrax when he fled in order to return the claw. You know, he met the Autark completely by chance, took his life, became Autark. Did he meet the high rows at, at Boldander's castle? Don't know. But based on the Undyne stream, it, it did seem he, like he killed Boldander. So his motiva motivations are different. And some of these things that happened are slightly different. But generally, the first Severian and our Severian's lives, they were very similar. And he did grow up in the mansion. His mother was sent to the mansion and executed as well. He was exiled. He fled the Thrax. Uh, he became Autark. He went to Yesod. Consequently, I'd expect that all these characters in these plays are characters that we ought to discover in our Severian's story. So I don't expect that the, that the events in Severian's life to be 100%, but I'd be, I expect to be able to figure it out if my model holds up. And albeit, they might be doing different things, acting for different motives. So um, one of the things I wanted to say here, though, is that when, when you look at these scenes, 
right? There's like a character like Jahi, for example. That doesn't mean that she always has to represent the same character, just like Severian and Jalenta and all these characters, they play different parts. Maybe some of these parts reflect different scenes, like different people, so that Nod in one scene might not be Nod in another scene, for example. Yeah. Like one time yeah, it could we were... be more like a Byatt and one time more like Baldanders. Um, so, you know, you can, you can kind of see some branching, but I do think that they're pretty consistent. And I mean, Jahi especially, it's very clear who she is by the end. Like she says, in real life, I'm bigger than all of you in reality. So, of course, she's Juturna, right? She just is. That's who she is. And it tells you what Juturna's mission is as well. Um, okay. So. Well, let's see how she lines up with Juturna, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And Juturna returns with, at the end of Earth of the New but if she, And if she's a, and if she does change characters, then I there's no point in doing that unless those characters are in some way singularly equivalent. Right? No, yeah. no, 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 no. Because uh, Severian yeah, actually, is playing multiple parts. They're different characters. Yeah. They don't have to be equivalent. Like even the play shows that like Severian is the autark in one scene and they or you know, he may not even be the autark, but he might be uh, the familiar or whatever doing the torturing. Um, and then, you know, in another, he could be a different character entirely. So I think yeah. that it shows the mutability of the play. And that's how I mean historically. That's kind of how allegory works, or at least complicated allegory. Like there, are, there's some allegory. And by the way, I had a whole lecture on allegory prepared, but I'm saving everyone from <laughs> by doing the history of allegory. But um, uh, maybe I'll post it somewhere on Patreon anyway. But anyway, point is like um, some allegory is really like one to one correspondence, where this thing equals this, and it always equals this. And like Pilgrim's Progress yep, yep. Mm-hmm. is an example of that that kind of very straightforward allegory. But then there's a whole other tradition where, just like Mark's kind of saying, where it's trickier because there isn't like a code book you can have that says this character equals this, and this action equals this, and this symbol equals this. It's more that context keep changing. And so one, you might like, like in Spencer's Fairy Queen, you have a knight who can go through various things. And at different points, he's kind of representing a virtue. But then at the next moment, he's representing, you know, Lord Grey from Ireland. And then the next moment, he's Walter Raleigh, but then he's back to his his kind of thing. And so it's like a mix. What allegory actually lets you do is kind of literally cheat and, and mix up all kinds of levels of signification when there's not one overt yes. sort of one-to-one and that's what thing. and that's what makes it hard and that's that's what I mean, that's why for the same reason people have argued about the fairy queen for 400 years you know <laughs> it's always changing so i that's kind of i think that's one of the first things that for me once i found that in the play then it becomes easier to just be like okay in this particular context what are we talking about yes because i'm i'm with you james if i try to say like this character equals x then there are going to be contradictions all over the place yeah so i think yeah so so that's that's one thing that i think sometimes with allegory people think okay well if i'm gonna interpret this then it has to be like fully consistent and it's actually the opposite it's like it all depends on the scene the context what's going on and that also means it's just way harder so even more confusing sometimes so yeah anyway Uh, okay so now we're ready for some other issues to tuck away before we begin on to take on the play proper the persons in the play, we have a list here. I, Gabriel, that's uh, played by Talos. The giant Nod, that's played by Baldanders. Uh, Meshia, the first man, played by Severian, who is naked. Uh, 
Messiana, the first the first woman played by Dorcas, also naked. Jahi, played by Jalinta, naked except for some jewelry. And I don't I don't want to say I expect some meaning in that, but I don't can't actually detect any. The Autark, played by Talos. The Contessa and her maid, obviously this is Jalinta and Dorcas, but you know, which is which is not obvious. Does it matter? I don't know. Probably the Contessa is Jalinta and her maid is Dorcas. Two soldiers. I suppose uh, for a lot of reasons that this is Talos and Severian. Statue, uh, I'm pretty sure that's Bald Anders. A prophet seems to be Severian, which is appropriate since I guess the prophet is the conciliator, but... Um, so, wait just a minute here. Uh, the prophet is actually played by the little girl who was healed in the jungle uh, or in the in the hut there uh, when it comes in Earth of the New Sun. So she really is just a prophet for the most part. She's like saying, hey, well, wait a minute. But you don't you mean the, rep- the prophet represents not played by. No, but yeah, yeah. The prophet will be played by her in Earth of the New Sun if we're going to call that a, a, a play as well. Like like that this is the reality and then that reality is just a reflection of it. So, I mean, when the time comes, it's going to be uh, a prophet of the New Sun and not the New Sun. Okay, okay. Uh, the Generalissimo. I think this is also Severian. The two demons disguised... Um, I think this is Severian and either Dorcas or Jolenta. Uh, the Inquisitor and his familiar. I, I'd say the Inquisitor is probably Talos and the familiar is Severian, but we can debate this issue. All right. Now, here we get interesting. The final ones are part of the mystery because they are not characters mentioned as appearing in this play. Angelic beings, the new sun, the old sun, the moon. All right, so it begins. They say, the back of the stage is dark. Gabriel appears bathed in golden light and carrying a crystal clarion. So I want to say something real quickly here. Gabriel is actually the archangel of Yassad. And so his appearance here is going to jive with, you know, the interference of Yassad as well as a higher state uh, moving to a lower. So I think that's that's important. Would that mean in some way Gabriel is Zadkiel or is like is serving a he, similar he's, role? Yes, he's like Zadkiel here, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So a clarion is a medieval trumpet that could play a melody with a clear, shrill tone. So it's it's not curved like modern trumpets. It's one long, straight tube leading to you know a normal trumpet ending, and it doesn't have pistons or valves. The there are um, you know sculptures and paintings of Gabriel blowing on or carrying a trumpet like this. This clarion is made of crystal, so I imagine. A glass trumpet, right? So it's a bugle. <laughs> it's just a big bugle. Yeah. Who yeah except well, a mean, bugle, even is, a bugle is curved, right? This yeah, is one of Gabriel's like symbols. Yeah. I mean, if you look at yeah. if you look oh, at yeah, Gabriel yeah, yeah. and the things associated with him, you'll see like yep. he's got lilies and you know he's got like a trumpet type thing. So Gabriel blow yeah. your horn, right? Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Which so which he so, has to do at the end of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he says, Greetings. I have come to set the scene for you. After all, that is my function. It's the night of the last day and the night before the first. The old sun has set. He will appear in the sky no more. Tomorrow the new sun will rise and my siblings and I will greet him. Tonight, tonight, no one knows. 
I suppose it's possible that as he's saying this, Severian is pantomiming the old son in the background and is doing something to just that it's setting. So real quickly here, uh, it's yeah. pretty clear that there are projectors and stuff that they have like backdrops and things. Mm-hmm. And so they're solar the power. Yeah. So they can actually have things appearing in the back there with their sophisticated technology, even though it's not clear that like they would have, you know, projector or whatever they did. So they have some props. Yeah. No, yeah. no they do have props, but yeah. they're listed as characters, <laughs> which so is, I, yeah. Yeah. So I like this too, because it suggests that like Zadkiel and the Asadis are kind of, they are kind of like a meta thing like the fact that they're i set the scene for you yes um mm-hmm. and so we've got this sort of outside of time moment right like gabriel can speak to us just like he can kind of speak to all of humanity at once um that kind of fits that gabriel would be this weird G- gabriel or zakiel would be this weird sort of cross break the fourth wall kind of thing right but yeah. he's, he's coming out of it yeah but i also like the fact that he he specifically brings out that there's there is a moment and he's tonight, tonight, no one knows. So this whole thing starts with, even though we've been talking about, right, like Mark, all his, you've already brought up like prophecy and, you know, knowing what the future will be and, and destiny and whatnot. He immediately starts off and says, there is a moment when everything seems to be in doubt. Yeah. And so at least there is still some sense of drama, <laughs> even if it's not. Yeah. You know, even though he says tomorrow, no. the new sun will rise. He's basically yeah, telling yeah. you it's going to come. Yeah. But tonight, no one knows. And so that leaves it open to be like, is it just that in experience, you don't exactly know, which would fit. I mean, if we're thinking about the the story, Severian as a narrator throughout all the books doesn't know. He might even feel like when he's he's been told or given signs in certain ways of what's going to happen. But he still never actually experiences that certainty. He's always still in the middle of of doubting. So still in this all happens tonight, tonight, no one knows. Right. Okay, so then uh, it continues. It says, everyone sleeps, and then footsteps, heavy and slow, enter Nod. Yeah, that's Baldanders, right? Uh, In the Bible, after Cain killed his brother and was granted a reprieve by God against vengeance by others for it, he went and dwelt in the land of Nod. In Hebrew, Nod is the root for the verb to wander, suggesting that maybe Cain became a fugitive. In English, Nod, of course, is a term for nodding off, going to sleep. And for that reason, the land of Nod is always, you know, played on as a pun. So the the land of Nod is the land of sleep. However, I don't think Wolf is doing any of this in this case. In, In this case, he's acting as if Cain went to the land of a person named Nod. And in the next verse, uh, Genesis 4.17, it makes a passing reference to Cain's infamous wife, who has been the subject of many a bad faith theological debate. Because since no wife of Cain was referenced previously, the suggestion is that he got his wife in the land of Nod, so she'd have to be one of Nod's daughters, and, you know, it just round and round and round. Where did, if Adam was the first man, then how could there be a a land that belonged to a guy named Nod. Additionally, it seems to me that Wolf is confabulating the supposed person Nod with the Nephilim, which come up later in the book of Genesis. And the idea being that angels father children on hum- human women. And all this comes from a highly disputed verse. Uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, it says, there were giants in the earth in those days, And also after that, when the sons of God came 
unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And in Hebrew, you know, the word is not giants, but the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, it says. But look, notice that the text does not say that the children of human women and the sons of God were Nephilim. The Nephilim seemed to have been something different, and we'll get to that. It, it simply says that those offspring were men of renown. And this suggests a kind of Judaic rationalization or confirmation of the age of heroes. And the stories of, quote, gods fathering children were in fact merely angels. And I'm no Talmudic scholar, but that's the way it looks to me. Uh, but you know, a lot of Talmudic scholars did not agree with me. Get in line, Talmudic scholars. I think uh, Wolf would find my interpretation appealing. So, but let's just glide over that. So, real quickly, this comes up actually in Earth of the New Sun when uh, the assassin Ida, like she's Ida, she's like a little. Okay, so first it looks like it's a male, but then it's a, it's it's actually a girl, undying, immature there, and winds up committing suicide there. Like the 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 discussion around that is that hey, we're we're basically the Nephilim, right? We're we're also descended from God. We're just in a different place, so it equates kind of the undines with the Nephilim as well, uh, in kind of an interesting way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, yes, I agree. Uh, the term Nephilim is disputed. All the mainstream translations from the Jewish Septuagint into the 5th century translated as giants. And this is confirmed in Numbers 13, where Joshua sends spies into Canaan, and they come back saying that they, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came of the Nephilim, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. But I guess, you know, it seems to come from the root meaning to fall, either suggesting people who cause others to fall down or people who are fallen. And I think there is some tenuous etymological justification for the latter. In Ezekiel 32.20, there's a possible der derivation that suggests a meaning of fallen soldiers. And that meaning, fallen, again, suggesting fallen angels, which is also suggests demons. However, I mean, let's get back to what this means here in this play. I think Nod represents megatherians. Is that, am I right? What do you think? Uh, no, I think he's he's Baldanders, right? And what Baldanders will become uh, for the most part. So he, he emulates them. He wants to be like them. Um, but okay, okay, yes and no. He, he, does, he does at this start resemble Abaya and that possibly, right, what Abaya wants is, is uh, to cast out the free will of man and to influence his his evolution, more or less, as kind of a, a, a vassal slave society for, for the Megatherians. So in a way, yes, but by the end, he's more Baldanders. Well, Bald it could Anders, be, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I see that connection too. I mean, I, that similarity, I see that when between Baldanders, like, I mean, and I think we talked about that too, that if, if Baldanders continued on his track, he'd basically become a new Megatherian. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's reason to believe that it is, uh, in this case, a, a Megatherian, uh, a specific Megatherian. The Megatherian that I say is in the mountain where the Manate Cave is found, and Zephyrian says it's chained there. So I, th I think that. This is the mega, this is the ogre from the tale of the students of his son, or at least it's a very heavy allusion to that, which I say is, you know, Erebus, but it is arguable that, like I said, that he shifts sometimes, like you say, Mark, being Erebus, sometimes a bio, sometimes both. 
And but, I still think that the, in the Man Apes Cave is that walking tower that shows up in Citadel of the Autark. So I'm still not sold that it's one of the Megatherians. Yeah. Well, we'll just see how this shakes out. Yeah. And we shall do. We shall fight that one in and Earth of the time. New Sun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's going to read for Gabriel? Who's re- who read for him last time? I'll keep. I'll keep going. So Gabriel then yells out, "Omniscience, defend your servant." Yeah, omniscience means all-knowing. It's an attribute of God, and I guess this is a commonwealth term for God, and as in, you know, increate or pancreator. So I'll be not yes. if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you serve him? So do we, Nephilim. I will not harm you then, unless he suggests it. You are of his household? How does he communicate with you? To tell the truth, he doesn't. I'm forced to guess at what he wishes me to do. I was afraid of that. This comes up later on, right? You get almost the same echo of that. Like we're we're infinitely far. This is in one of those little storytelling competitions about the angel who's very far away. So in this nod is kind of like the angel in that. And it's a weird moment where if nod is Baldanders and or the Megatherians, it is suggesting here that in an odd way, he is doing something right he's got himself at least somewhat on the right path in this sense of growing, changing, evolving. But again, he has to still guess. So there's, there is that suggestion that it's not that Baldanders is pure evil. It's just that he's sort of like an alternate kind of way that and later on develop. Later on, you know, when they fight and he casts the claw out from the window, when he comes back in Earth, he says, I thought it was an impediment to you. I thought you were worshiping something false that was a lie. I was thought I was doing you good by throwing away the claw. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, one thing about the Nephilim, though, yeah, they can be they're they're children of angels. But I think the idea here is fallen angels. Right. Uh, the idea of that the Nephilim might be of the household of God, along with the angels and seraphim, uh, supports a claim that Wolf was going for the interpretation that I've advocated. But I don't think this has a literal interpretive meaning, uh, alas. And, and this no, is the think... most surface level, a witty joke on Wolf's part. But remember that this is something that. You know, is it Zadkiel? Certainly some Yasadi says that the hierogrammets are closer to the increate than humans, but that the increate is still infinitely above them. I, I think this exchange might suggest something Wolf is going to elaborate on later, and that the Megatherians do not see themselves as engines of evil, but only an alternative, equally valid future for humanity and Earth where humanity is tamed by the megatherians and you know even the autark says that humanity's warring predatory influences were are why the yasadi struck the sun so arguably that you know, they are also trying to tame humanity or at least re- redirect their wildness which might come to some come to the same thing right i like the fallen angel idea because i mean even in even in paradise lost milton has satan Satan is doing good things. He's just not being good enough. And it's it's so sort of like the the fact that he is choosing that he's having his free will is good. It's just that he's he's not doing it quite well enough, which is what the other angels and what Adam ultimately will be shown he can do. I just like this because it suggests that there is something beneficial or good in what the Megatherians or Baldanders do because they're still in this. They're not just totally opposed. To, I mean, they are not, they're not themselves 
Satan <laughs> or, or pure <laughs> evil is what this kind of suggests. Um, but that there's there's a still better way to do something. And that's kind of a different idea than I think we've talked about before. Yeah. And when when Juturna returns at the very end of Earth of the New Sun, you know, she she goes on land and she's so huge that she's basically bleeding to death and falling apart there. And she says, I've come to save you all. Uh, so she thinks even that she's not a force of destruction at the end there. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's important to remember that if the angels are the sons of God, then the children of even demons are, you know, they're still God's grandchildren, right? So he's still, they're still of the household of God. And what okay. makes this even more complicated in the play is that those demons, I think that they match up best with the Herodules when they come. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, Mark, you want to do uh, sure. nods have, next line? Have you seen Mashiach's son? <laughs> uh, now, Mashiach is the Adam of Zoroastrianism, right? So if we have any Persian or Kurdish listeners ready to correct me on pronunciation, well, you know, I'd welcome it. We made a great deal of Gnosticism in this book, and I'm sure that we've referenced Kabbalism, um, or we, we certainly will. But I don't think we can make too much of the influence of Zoroastrianism in this book and in the culture of the Commonwealth. We can only guess wildly at how that might have occurred, but I think it is strongly implied that the ancestors of the people of the Commonwealth, uh, of them, you know, except the autochthons, uh, they are latter comers and the exultants are the most lately come of all. So who knows where they came from? Uh, and we have evidence of both Zoroastrianism and Hindu mythology being common knowledge in the Commonwealth. And so I want to actually interject just a little bit of extra information here. So in, in this religion, um, ori the original first man, Gaelmart, was destroyed by Ahriman. And so from his corpse, he kind of became like gold and silver. Uh, Jahi is actually the demon that woke up Ahriman and kind of led to his death. And so from his death, Meshia and Meshian spring up from one man, kind of like uh, Severian is Thecla and Severian in there, male and female. Uh, so like, you know, the, the male and female come from one man in this and they grow from plants into humans, which I think is also important to what I will argue later in short sun. Mm. Uh, also, uh, Meshia as Adam in this story, this I think is a Christological reference. Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, by the first Adam, sin entered the world, and by the second Adam, humanity was forgiven, getting a whole new start. So it made perfect sense to me when I first read this. Uh, and then I stopped reading until I could look up and find out who Meshia was, because you know I was like that, and I still am. And believe me, it wasn't easy because there was no Wikipedia at the time. But it made perfect sense when I found out about him that Severian would play Meshia, Adam, as I was sure I understood that this, you know, at least this little nugget of the play. And Nod is looking for Adam's son, and that son is obviously Cain. So the players at this point, they all, they all make sense to me. Nod is looking for Cain, and why wouldn't he, since Cain went to the land of Nod? And we've all got that, and it's clear at the level of illusion, even if I'm not 100% clear at the plot level. 
Okay, yeah, so, so just to, just some questions real quick then that that Mark maybe you got a better sense of. But so we've got Gabriel coming. We've got him saying we are in between the old sun and the new sun, which makes it seem like we're not at the beginning of creation. But then we move to these Genesis references, which are all about back. It seems like in the creation. But well, I I think we could be in the like multiple creations. So this um, is the thing. Starts and over. Yeah. You mean not, like multiple iterations and universes, Craig? Possibly, but no. Look, look what not asks. Have you seen Mashiach's son? He didn't ask for Adam's son, so Mashiach's son hasn't been born yet. But he's like, no, and he tells the story of Cain in a little bit. That's from Adam, right? This is like a different one, and so um, okay. So and also when at the end of Earth, when Severian is going there, he's like the 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 Herodules or whatever have just landed a male and a wo- a, a man and a woman, and he's like, could it be me and Bergen de Fora that they've landed here? And he's like, no, it's it's some of the sailors that have been mind wiped. So Meshi and Meshian will basically be introduced as kind of like a blank slate there, a tabula rasa that that's landed, uh, and they'll show oh, up at the end okay. of Birth of the New Sun. So like and this, so will, the yeah, the biblical allusions then are more like it'll be a new start. So yes. it's like mm-hmm. that. Okay, gotcha. So it's not like we're not here at the beginning of Earth's Earth. No, because he even tells all. him, we're, did we? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're at <laughs> we'll get to that in <laughs> a know, second. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. I, I think I, I, I don't think I really understand. What are we talking? Give that another shot here, Mark. Well, let's read the lines, the next lines. Have okay, I seen all right. him? Yeah. Okay. So, Gabriel, yeah. have I seen him? Why are you great, Nenny? He isn't even born yet. What do you want with him? He's to come and dwell with me in my land east of this garden. I'll give him one of my daughters to wife. You have the wrong creation, my friend. You're 50 million years too late. So there he's talking about Cain, right? He's thinking of Adam's son. But before he was asking about Mashiach's son and Gabriel was like, he's not even born yet, you you ninny, because Mashiach is not really Adam. Okay. Who is he then? He's that he's the dude who's dropped off. If he's not Severian, he's the dude that's dropped off uh, at the end of Earth of the New Sun by the aliens. So the sort of like the fathers of the the Ushas. The next, yeah, the people who will yeah. come next. Yes, and and so like I have uh, more to say about that a little bit later. Why is he Mashiach's son? Because this is what's going to humanity is going to interact with something different, just like Mashiach. And Meshian sprung up from a plant. Humanity is going to culminate in the green man there. So it's going to be different than humanity as it was. And so uh, earlier when they ran into the green man or when Severian did, he gave him a prophecy that says you will war with your children. Right. And so that is what's going to happen there. This is the, the child that was kind of prophesied of humanity because humanity has to pretty much be cut off. And that will become explicit in this play as we go on. And I, I think part of, part of what's happening in this part here is kind of a if there's an in-joke even among between Gabriel and Nod, it's the idea that one of them might think we're talking about the creation of all humanity, whereas Nod seems to be more aware, like we're, we're talking about sort of a second creation. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of going, it's using these illusions from the beginning of humanity when what they're really talking about, whether or not. Gabriel seems to know at least is kind of like no we're 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 at we're at a new one we're I would say Gabriel's context is Ushus and here Nod is his context is more the original yeah. one yes yeah yeah well I mean it certainly implies a uh, a series of creations right yeah there's yeah. more than one um, yeah and and Nod just kind of nods slowly you know not understanding but he says well you know if you should see him. 
Um, not as looking at for Cain, I think. I mean, that's the idea, right? That's the the reference, and it's not that's just yeah, yeah. And um, Messiah's son, um, he's supposed to come to his land east of the this garden. When Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden, they settle east of Eden. He wants for him to do. Uh, what is roughly open to interpretation, uh, but still, you know, he wants him to do what he did, that Cain went to the land of Nod, got a wife there. But Adam and Eve are still in the garden. So Cain has not yet been born, right? And as Gabriel says, you know, and, and then, then, then Nod like describes, yeah, and, and then Nod set, describes the acts of Cain in Genesis. And Gabriel corrects him that it's not, that creation it's a different creation a creation that occurs you know far later than the original creation story so all this was hard for me at one point this is where i was getting lost because adam had a son sure but severian did not by the time i got to the end of citadel and when he got to the end of earth it it made even less sense um and you know bolders doesn't have a daughter either but now, now, guys, thanks to Michael Andre Drisi and all that I stole from him, I think I'm on the verge of understanding. This is the model I'm approaching this with because I'm currently going through this play with the idea in my head that this is not Severian's story, but the first Severian story. And that reference to Meshia's son is a reference to the tale of the student and his son. Possibly Meshia then is... Owen, that's not totally without evidence. I, I don't believe it, but it could be the case. I think his son is our Severian. Severian, after all, like Adam's son, Cain, is exiled. And to be fair, the first Severian was also exiled and wandered. But, uh, well, you know, let's insert the puzzle pieces where they fit. And the Megatherians certainly are trying to lure him into their fold. And that daughter, who he wants our Severian to marry, we have a an ogre with a daughter and to my mind that's you know thecla in this case or since it's you know first Severian, as i see it you know maybe it's thea and thecla had you know a kraken bracelet designating her loyalty to the megatherians and thea doesn't quite require a signifier of where her loyalties lie because she's off hiding in the woods both first Severian and our Severian will be married to the daughter of not the daughter of the megatherians so i don't really agree with any of that so we'll <laughs> Okay. Well, I think too. I think when when he says son, I don't. That can also just mean follower or somebody who comes after. Like if like if it is the two sailors, those people don't have to be related to Severian, but they can be Severian's son because they're the ones who inherit the future that Severian has made for them. And so that's that's where you know it's it just allegory gets you know. But aren't it's all we encouraged the, the trick to is it's on... all metonymy. Well, yeah. it's allegory. The way this one works in particular, too, and Mark, you probably would like this because you you really like finding how Wolf plays with metonymy. But I feel like that's that's how the allegory of this thing is working all the time. That it's the metaphors aren't exactly 
right. Like it doesn't, if a character has a son, it doesn't mean it's going to be a son. It's going right. to be something kind of like a Actually, so many of these are gender flopped later where, where the autark is actually Valeria, you know, when, when, when the time comes and uh, then the prophet is actually that girl uh, that Severian healed when, when she was young. And, you yeah. know, so like it, a lot of it swaps out in subtle ways so that, yeah, it could be a daughter, for example, instead of a son there that, that's yeah. carrying it on. But I just don't think this is about first Severian at all. I think this is about our Severian and his timeline and these events actually happened to him and that we can see them and pull them out and point to them. I find the reference to a son only seven chapters after the tale of the student and his son to be way too inviting. Well, you know, there's lots of sun references in the book of the new sun. And, uh, but uh, not, a, yes, yes. But who, <laughs> what is Meshia's son then? Is are we talking about, are we saying that he wants to marry his daughter to the new sun? This is, that this doesn't is the future work of humanity. This is the future of humanity. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. That's yeah. uh, okay. All right. Yeah, I'm, going to, I'm going to let you run free. Mark, but okay, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think I'm going to be with Mark on this one because then it starts to make more senses. Like, like, why would we care about all this? Like, if it's just individual characters, I don't know. But if it's, but if he's, the whole point of not here would be like, what's, what's, so like this little section is kind of saying, here are two sides who are thinking about different destinies for humanity. Yes, and, and I want to be in gonna, on it. Whoever's going to get the sun, and who, yeah. who's going to have more influence? Yeah, I think. That's probably what's going on. Was well, the author so, of Wise Blood once said about the Bible, well, if it's all metaphor, to hell with it. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's see. Greg, let's go ahead and leave the next one. Okay. So it says, enter Meshia and Meshian with Yahi, Jahi following. Again, there's that J. I don't know how to say. Jahi yeah, I think it's actually all pronounced our... J. That's just for the record. That's a mess. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. All are naked, but... Jahi, sorry, where's jewelry? Yeah. So is there significance to the fact that uh, Jahi or Jahai wears jewelry? She's a temptress. Uh, I don't see the connection. You're attracted to things that are shiny and sparkly. Oh, okay. Well, she's naked. That's probably all we need. Uh, and some jewelry. <laughs> okay. Um, but is there a jewelry wearing character in the book of the new sun is there, or earth of the new sun severian he's got a claw that's right he's got a claw okay <laughs> the but, has that fancy phallic yeah. necklace yeah. <laughs> yeah but there's i think there yeah i mean I that's closer the, than anything you know, else there mark so <laughs> but yeah the naked and wearing jewelry is is yeah the seductive thing okay. I, mean, I think that's that's that would be part of it like i'm, I'm thinking in christopher marlowe's Tamberlane, one of the things about all the seductors characters is they're always made up in like this exquisite yeah. jewelry, which is supposed to yeah, make them flashier. So but um well Agia that, has Agia has all those fancy weapons. So we could That's true. Yeah. That's true. Who's gonna do Meshia and Meshian? I guess, I guess I will take him on. And someone will have to okay. do Meshian. I'll, I'll be Meshian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They all fight over it. Yeah, yeah, we'll fight over that one. I'll be Meshian. <laughs> okay. Meshia. What a lovely place. Delightful. Flowers, fountains, and statues. Isn't it wonderful? I saw a tame tiger with fangs longer than my hand. What shall we call him? Whatever he wants. So, yeah, a couple of jokes here. Uh, Talos is incorporating the setting of the house, Absolute Gardens, into the play. And we're having a play in the garden. The act of the play is about a garden. Isn't this 
place we're all in audience, a beautiful garden. And then there's the old joke, you know, what do you call a 500 pound gorilla? Whatever he wants. And of course, Adam named all the animals, although in Genesis, this was before God made Eve. A little bit later in Earth of the New Sun, or is it even before that? Severian actually, I think, tames a tiger. Um, which, which that's is kind of in, it's either sword or citadel. Yeah. yeah, where yeah. They're uh, walking in the, in the, the desert and, yeah, but doesn't give him a name. Alas, he doesn't give, I guess he, he just lets him be called whatever he wants. And then but. I think there's a scene where uh Typhon basically, uh, sets up some guy to be killed by an animal and Severian kind of tames it again too. I don't yeah. remember what that yeah. is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That, that in earth. Yeah. What is it? I don't even remember if he, yeah. uh, if he gives it a name, but I mean, if we're just thinking about names, he does give Triscally a name. That's true. That that, he does name him. Yeah. That, I don't know that that's really what this is about. But well, that's good. Yeah, it could be. Well, yeah. it could very well be a, a Dominic reference. That's maybe going too far, but it's there. Yeah. And I feel like the biggest thing here is that we're we're playing with, okay, here's, we're going to set you up to think this is Adam and Eve, but then it's going to go in a different It's way. all going to turn all so ugly. So Amashia says to Gabriel, who owns this beautiful spot? The Autark. And he permits us to live here. That's very gracious of him. Not exactly. Aha. Uh -huh. Again, this in part is at least a reference to the Kali of the play. However, guys, when Mashiach says, so the Autark lets us live here and tell us, as Gabriel says, not exactly. This is either a joke that seemed too clever to Wolf, but didn't really carry, or it's an occulted reference to something. I don't know what it is. Any ideas? I don't have one. Yeah. So here they're saying he lets us live here. No, you can't just live there. Like he's going to like charge you rent or he's going to kick you off or he's going to arrest you. So they can't just stay there. Like they think that they can just live there in paradise there, but it's not paradise. If the Autark owns it, he's going to kick them out. Yeah. And okay. we're also doing a mix up here where the omniscience and the Autark seem like they're kind of put in the same role, right? Like, like, yes, at it, first we think God. that God, yeah, right. That's the other thing here is that God and Autark are kind of getting mixed. And that's kind of the, that's one of the weirdness parts, but it's also sort of saying how in certain perspectives, it seems like the Autark is God. It's a suggestion that he's doing something that's incredibly important, but also we should probably think, well, the Autark's not, he's not God. He's not God, God is yeah. nothing else altogether. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but the yeah. play itself, the play itself uh, denies it. Uh, Jahi, Jahai uh, denies it. Um, the Contessa is going to deny it. Um, that that Meshia would conflate the Autark with the Increate. I, yeah. I think and that, I think I think Wolf is not is not unaware that this is going on, and it's treated as an inaccuracy within the play. Because it both is and isn't. Because some characters see that as the Autark being truly the leader of everything. And, and also, dead. he's the guy who's risking everything to bring the new son. Right, right. So in a sense, it's kind of, it, it's pointing out the sort of double nature where I think Severian is both the savior, but also not. Like, he's still mm. just playing a role for God. So that I think the point of mixing them up and there being some ambiguity there is kind of the point where, where even Wolf would say, yes, yeah, Severian is Christ-like, but he is not like, that doesn't mean that he's actually even though, God. 
even though yeah. he's turning water into wine and right. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so this is the first time it kind of brings that up and it's, it's playing with that. Like it's still kind of a joke and it's saying, yeah, yeah. it's confusing. And, um, then yeah. So when the other characters deny it, they're, they're right, but also wrong. You know, yeah. the well, they're probably also- going to be, if it's Jai, you know, they're, they're going to be probably right for the wrong reason. <laughs> if, that, <laughs> if that makes sense. Very. Weird. So I, I think you are right. Uh, and one thing that I do definitely agree with is that the autarch is often Severian himself, even though Mashia is is talking to him at some points. So that's um, I, I think that has to be, but I don't know why. Once again, I don't know the meaning of it all, and I guess that's why I, I, I'm still you know sh- dragging my feet and coming along with you guys. I yeah. just I, I find the metaphorical interpretation of this uh, very unsatisfying very unsatisfying it's, it's not metaphorical it's actually quite literal like we're saying uh, hey. we'll see we'll see yeah. we'll see okay um so gabriel says there's someone following you my friend do you know it amesia isn't even looking up he says uh there's something behind you too Gabriel flourishing the clarion that is his badge of office yes he is behind me i would rather you say he is behind me uh, yeah. <laughs> he is behind me. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Yeah. yeah it is capitalized E, uh, H. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It, it's God. Yeah. 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 Uh, this, this exchange uh, at first glance, uh, it's a quote, you know, look, your shoes are untied joke, right? For kids, it's, you know, incredibly funny to say, well, uh, your shoes are untied, but there's a bear behind you in order to make the victim look. And the cleverest response is just to respond, I know, without looking. But this is also Gabriel sort of pointing out again that thing that god is god has always got his hands in things yep, even he's always if, yep he's always there even if ways that we don't particularly understand just like gabriel could be like yeah i know you're just joking that there's somebody behind me too but actually there really is you just but it's aren't. not but it's not god behind him it's it's not right uh i think gabriel yeah, nods probably... behind him literally but but metaphorically god's behind him Always. Yeah. I find that to be very problematic. <laughs> no, it's well, like if I you think... ask me, who supports you, Mark? And I say, he supports me. I'm talking about God providing for me. You know, like, why would it be problematic? Also, there's... Yeah. Well, because well, it's not. Because not is taking that role. I mean, it's... He's uh, not. Like... No, he's just there. It's, it's totally unrelated. He's just like, there's a physical person, but he doesn't matter. God is the only important thing behind him. Okay. Yeah, that's that's one thing I feel like the trick to a lot of this stuff is that going back to that thing about allegory, that it's not going to be a reduction of this equals this, that a lot of times, like that point about the autark we said before, it'll be two things at once and it'll mean different things at the same time. And the fun of it, the sort of wink wink of it is to be speaking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. And they're both true, but they're also in certain contexts, not not quite exactly what people mean. So like here, Gabriel is like, like Meshi is saying, he could be saying one or two things. He could either be saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's someone behind you too. And I'm not even looking. And Gabriel would be like, ah, you think you're joking, but you're actually right. Um, Or even if he's like, you know, yeah, there is somebody it's nod behind you. Gabriel could be like, okay, you mean nod. I mean, God. Um, And sort of the joke is that we're, we're supposed to see that Gabriel is kind of being smarter all the time. So that's one of those things like allegory is supposed to be working where there's 
a bunch of things that can be met at one time. And okay. I think that's, that's how it works here. So okay, yeah, my allegorical wizards, what, who, what is following Meshia? Jahi. Jahi's behind him. And Jahi killed Gaelmar. So she's a threat. She's a danger. She's there to seduce him. She's dangerous to, to everything. So Jahi's following him. It's actually in this play description. Following behind them is Jahi. I'm looking for where Jahi shows up. It is really, really. Inter Meshian Meshian followed by Jahi. Yeah. So this is kind of one of those things where the it's, it's a joke where he's like, Gabriel's giving you a warning that, Hey, look out, somebody's after you. And Meshia thinks he's going to be smart and be like, yeah, there's someone behind you too. And Gabriel's like, Oh, you're not outsmarting me. I know there's someone behind me. Mine is good. Well, yours is bad. You know I mean? It's, it's well, all, that's all that kind of wink, wink stuff. Okay. So at that point, Gabriel brandishes his horn, which he's going to blow to signal the end of the world. And just as Heimdall will blow his horn to signal Ragnarok. And Gabriel says, yeah, that's a good point. Nod is behind me. That is, he does come after me. And so I'm starting to get I lost think, here honest, because I think you could work that in too. Honestly, I mean, that, yeah, that, you could, you could. that meaning works there too. Like that totally is consistent with all the sort of multiple meanings going on. Um, and it actually is kind of cool because it does help emphasize Gabriel's point that, yeah, God is behind me. So Nod may literally be behind me, but there's somebody stronger behind me. And that's he with a capital H too. So I'm not worried. Yeah. About Nod. Here's where it's kind of losing me again. Um, this little uh, conversation to me would suggest that the Megatherians will rise after Gabriel blows his horn at the end of the age. People have noted the thematic connection between the thing, you know, chained in the Manaves came and Fenris, the wolf chained to a rock called Guile in the underworld. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's just... well, well, see, I think that that clarion badge of his office, it's, it's supposed to serve God, right? It, that's what it does. So I don't necessarily think that it suggests the rise of any megatherian, but it will ring out and that's when the flood will come and so many things will change on earth. So definitely everything will change as a result of that clarion call when it's actually, when it's actually rung out there um, and the dawn comes and the new sun comes and everything is submerged, right? So, yeah, I mean, that whatever's in there could be liberated if there is something like that. Um, so. All right. All right. Well, Meshia says, and he's close too, uh, close behind you too. If you're going to blow that horn to call for help, you'd better do it now. Why? How perceptive of you, but the time is not quite ripe. So the golden light fades and Gabriel vanishes from the stage and nod remains motionless, leaning on his club. And well, once again, this appears to be like a Ragnarok reference, but this is not quite the end of the world yet. And we have a strange story to detail. And uh, I think this is a good place to stop. And I, but before I do, what has all this told us? What, what does, does your metaphor reveal that about the this sun? book? The new sun will come and that um, Nod, whatever he is, is interested in mixing with whatever future humanity will hold in that new creation. So, yeah, and also I think that that mix up about sort of this looks like Genesis, but Gabriel is suggesting it's actually coming in this, this in-between point. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of saying there will be a totally, there's going to be a wipeout and there's going to be a new race that comes. And it's um, coming. And yeah, so, it's coming. And it's coming. Yeah. And it's, it's, we're getting ready for it right now. So what looks like 
I'm telling you a story of the beginning of the world is it is, but it's not the beginning you think it is. And it's it hasn't happened beginning yet. It's about to come later. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm following yeah. what you guys are, are yeah. getting at. You're saying that it is Severian's world and the Commonwealth itself. Yes. That is the yeah. mid ground between the new sun and the, you know, the galactic empire, uh, all, all of the history that came before. I guess that's possible. Um, I, I'm really looking for meaning in this play, and I, I don't—I have a feeling I'm not going to get it. But I'm looking for a meaning in this play that would justify me spending as much time as it takes. But the meaning—it's going to go is, it's gonna show I us think. the future of humanity. It's going to tell us exactly like who wants to control who. It gives us the motivations of the Megatherians. It gives us the motivations of the Herodules. It gives us everything eventually here, and it even tells us how the end is going to be. It's going to be like the flood at the beginning. So I think that this play is of ultimate importance, especially without Earth of the New Sun. This is the conclusion of the book. We know the new sun's going to come. If you didn't have this, you just have to assume that Severian uh, is going to bring the new sun. This tells you, hey, tomorrow the new sun will come. Yeah, it's sort of, to me, it's working like it's a myth. In the middle of all this stuff, we get this myth. And it's like when you're, let's say, first time you're reading it, you pick up on all this. Okay, this is kind of biblical. There's references to things that I remember, like Garden of Eden, and it's telling a story about the creation of the world in some way. But how is that fitting in? But as you come back and read it, Again, you can start to to see connections between the Syriaca's story or between what the Hieroduels kind of suggest sometimes. And so as you feel like first time you read it, you have no clue what's going on. It just sounds all this vaguely biblical stuff that's talking about a new sun. So you get all that religious imagery. You get the whole notion of, you know, a new humanity and, and something about a new creation. But when you look at it again, it's the myth if you can find those those sort of little to me they're they're almost more like jokes and sort of winks at the audience where it's like okay i'm saying this but now you should know that i really mean not the first creation but the second creation then it starts to do kind of like mark saying where it's like it suggests certain things about oh well this is this is telling us about sort of humanity's story overall and which is the real backdrop of what severian's going through so um and I think, James, what you were saying is you were trying to find connections to Severian's life itself. And it, there, still there, there may be there's there's some there. in there. Well, it is there, the Book of the New Sun, right? Right. But the, which but is the a memoir of, of Severian's life itself. Which is also in this world becomes the story of like it's a new gospel in a lot of ways. Right. And so mm -hmm. you got to just like you could say, you know the actual gospels are not just a story of what happened to this guy named Jesus, but actually really telling a story about destiny and everything that's happening, you know, to everybody's soul everywhere. And I think this is, this is kind of supposed to be doing the same kind of thing. Well, I will say one thing, one thing I, I do concede that the interpretation of this play as taking place in that midpoint between the old sun, the you know, the history of Earth before, and the new sun, the history of Earth coming uh, coming to be, that does make sense here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of thrown by my new role as skeptic, but, but for <laughs> you and Mark, and uh, so 
that this is going to be worse. We always, we always, <laughs> I like the metaphorical stuff more. So, so yeah. 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 I guess it makes yeah, I'm, I'm out of the, my domain and uh, forced to fend for myself. So, and I am outnumbered among you <laughs> metaphor lovers. That's a lot. Yeah. We've talked along <laughs> enough. Mm-hmm. I don't want to bite off more than, uh, than, too much of this at once. I, I want time to reflect. And I, I want to hear maybe from some listeners with their corrections and their clarifications and their input. Uh, this is, you know, this is our only chance to go through this thing in this kind of detail and that we're doing it. And I don't want to squander it. So, you know, please help out and uh, bring, you know, those things to us on the Facebook group, subreddit, Twitter, email, Patron site, master Slack channel. You can find out how to do all that in the show notes. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Tell your wolf-freeing friends, definitely. Literally, that is the best thing you can do to get anyone to listen if you recommend it to them. And until, people, until we continue with this play, may the Moira favor you. May you allegorically be with <laughs> No, do it literally. May they actually favor you. I don't want to hear any. Oh, yeah, it's it, it theory. It's theory. Pretty cool. Well, not really live. Well, <laughs> w- in the sense that we always are. <laughs> don't don't not, be a freaking pedant, Craig. Not quite. <laughs> you go on, Craig. Oh no, I don't have anything else. Oh, oh. <laughs> so actually, I, just, I though, forgot. Yeah. So, Mark, any chance you can think you'd be able to be in Chicago in the first weekend in September? I, Unfortunately, no. I mean, maybe I could do like a Zoom thing, but I, I really, yeah, I can't, I can't make it. Just, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe we could still, like, it still might be fun. Honestly, I think it'd be kind of cool. Like, if we're all sitting in the room doing stuff, we could, we could have a, I don't know, we'll, we'll call it the day's midday keynote or something, <laughs> and, and we could have <laughs> you do a Zoom. Like, so it'd still be fun. Like, everybody else gets together, and you know, and I think. 
I don't know. I, I think you'd be a star. I think you'd be cool really? that people would like yeah. to, to. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. If we could do something uh, distance wise and then hopefully next year, if we can get together, but yeah, this is, it's not a good time. Hey James, can you hear me at all? James. That was peculiar. Now that's a peculiar new thing. Can you hear me? Oh, which one? <laughs> Where was I it? can do it. I can be nice about it. Hello. Hello. Okay. So. Son of a Connecting. This meeting is being recorded. It's being recorded. All right. We're going. Can you hear me? I don't have an interest in excusing Severia. Wow. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let me go find my keys because that's in my garage. Hold on a second. Someone's stealing your car. <laughs> you can't hear me? I want to screw it up the same way next time. <laughs> Son of a... And let me think. Hold on. I do have something to say. I just got to think for a second. Um... So um, hopefully you can patch all this together. It's going to be like Frankenstein's monster. I'm yeah, sorry. it'll work. 